The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Wilderness Experience co-founders Jim and Greg Thompson. We talk about their experience breaking into the industry, taking a company public, and their experience in senior leadership at companies like VF Corporation, Nike, and Adidas. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and uh, joining me today, uh, two guests. Uh, Typically, we we do this one at a time, Um, but this is such a great story. We needed two voices, Um, Jim and and Greg Thompson, uh, the founders of Wilderness Experience, among among many other things. I mean, you've both been so influential in, in the outdoor industry and done so many things. We'll, we'll get into some of the, the you know, everything after wilderness, wilderness experience, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the company as, as a part of our History of Gear series that we've been putting together here. Um, thanks for joining me. I, I appreciate being able to talk to you both. Great. Right. Yeah, I, I should ask, first of all, um, you know, how are you both doing? It, it's kind of a, a very strange time, to say the least. Um, you know, a lot going on. I, you know, so I, I, I need to ask, like, how are you both doing in, in the world of, of COVID that we're living in? Hope, hope you're both <laughs> well and safe at the time. Um, I'll go because I'm still working and Jim's uh, backpacking a lot. Um, I've been, we've been isolated for about six months now. It's been kind of interesting. I'm still um, running Adidas Outdoor in the United States. And so we have our, uh, every other day group meetings and, and then trying to sell products and move stuff. It's been pretty, it's been challenging, but it's actually uh, starting to see a little light at the end of the tunnel. And like Greg said, I've been playing a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, I haven't worked in a really long time and uh, uh, normally we would be doing a lot of international travel, but uh, now we've, stayed home since uh, we went down to Patagonia in February and came back in March and uh, have been here. Uh, I've been putting a lot of time working with the SBA on disaster loans, helping small businesses in, because I live in Mammoth, so it's a very small town in the Eastern Sierra is pretty small. And so I'm the only SBA consultant uh, for the Eastern Sierra. Uh, so my time here has been super, super busy, but we've, uh, I just found out we, uh, I didn't even realize there was a limit on how many wilderness permits they give out. The maximum a person can get for a season is 55 nights. And we've done that. Uh, wow. So that's pretty incredible. So, uh, uh, and we're leaving again uh, on Thursday for another week. Uh, in fact, we're going to, we were, I was talking, uh, I don't know if you've interviewed Steve Barker from uh, Eagle Creek. No, I meant to. Yeah. He's going to be in the exact same area. So we're going to meet out uh, in the backcountry. Mm. Uh, so it's been uh, actually really fun. Well, it, you know, Steve Barker, uh, the, you know, they've been on my list for a while. Um, they're kind of an interesting story. This is a little bit of a tangent. Um, 
I don't know if our listeners will care much about this, but I, I'm interested in that. I when when they were kind of looking at locations for where to locate Eagle Creek, um, I had heard through the grapevine or this rumor that that Logan, Utah, was one of those little towns that they drove through um, and considered locating Eagle Creek. Um, and then you know they ended up keep you know they kept driving driving west and didn't end up locating it there. Um, so missed opportunity for us. But but that's one of those that you know I've I've wanted to talk to them a little bit about um, you know passing through through Logan during that time and and what that was like and and just that decision of of where to locate. But mm-hmm. but uh, a little off track. You know we're we're talking about other people and we're here to talk about you too. But. Um, so, I, I mean, just a busy time in general. Um, I, I'm curious from both your perspectives, you're, uh, you know, with, um, you know, Jim, with, with you kind of out, out, you know, recreating and, and, and working, right? You're probably seeing participation, a lot of participation right now, like you said. Um, and then Greg on the Adidas outdoor side, I mean, what does the out, outdoor business look like right now? Obviously, a lot of uncertainty, but some of the guests we, that we've talked to, you know, bike, bike is off the charts. Everyone wants to bike right now. Um, I guess, how are things looking at in the present day, you know, for, from an, an Adidas perspective and, and then and Jim, you know, just from a recreation perspective, you kind of mentioned just a lot of people wanting to get out right now. Um, well, I also, we also have the um, 510 brand. So we do mm-hmm. a lot of bike products and it, it's actually maybe doubled in sales during the wow. So uh, the big thing for everybody right now is online sales. So Amazon sales are way up. Uh, everybody's direct consumer sales are way up. So that's, that's helping a lot. And, and what we're seeing is a, a lot of trail running, um, hiking, walking, and biking are all kind of activities you could do with, that are relatively low cost, but also socially distanced. And, um, those are all growing. And then there's a big push from the outdoor industry to get more diversity into the outdoors. And so I'm involved with a number of those programs where we're doing outreaches. So we're bringing a lot of new people to the outdoors that had been a little bit neglected when there was you know, a vibrant business. So what now when everybody's kind of trying to get every every sale they can get, they're starting to realize that they've been ignoring half of the country for 40 years. So um, I, I think the future is really great, but I think it's going to be in a, with a whole new group of people. Right. Well, yeah. And that, that's a beautiful thing. I, you know, this reminds me of a, a previous conversation. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple, couple different individuals about um, how COVID and being inside is reframing how we look at outdoors and and traditionally you know in the industry that 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 you've been you know you both have been such a big part of and the industry that i think a lot of people think of uh, you know outdoor is you know climbing backpacking climbing the highest peak right doing the most extreme activity um i think being cooped up inside for months on end i think going outside is the outdoors right i think people are thinking well just going outside is is participating in an outdoor activity um you know, I think there's a reframing that's happening that is is a really positive thing ultimately, right? Something that's been needed for a long time. It's 
any outdoor activity is, is, you know, should be a part of the outdoor industry. Um, and I don't know if that's something that you're seeing. Um, but you know, we had our cash trails planner, uh, for the County came on and, and he works, um, in trail building efforts as well as, um, kind of active transportation within our downtown area. And he, he likes to say the trail starts, you know, you know, as soon as you walk out your front door, right? That's how active transportation and trails should be. And I really like that approach, whether you're in a big city or, um, you know, you're, you're in a small town, small rural community. It's like the outdoors should be, you know, as soon as you step out your front door. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, either of you, but. Jim, um, I mean, I do because we're, we're, we're seeing like, well, the more people we talk to who haven't gone outdoors, they've not felt comfortable going outdoors. So, I mean, with all the stuff that's going on currently, if you, you know, you're afraid to walk on the street or, you know, walk down the, to the liquor store and back, you're not going to go trail running or go out into some, you know, area where there aren't very many people. So it's really frightened a lot of people from going outdoors. And I think that's going to be broken down. And you know, making making the outdoors more inviting to a lar- lot larger group of people who haven't been there will be like starting the industry all over again. It'll be like the '60s, from, you know, all over. I, yeah, um, Jim. Any thoughts on that? Well, definitely, I can tell you from uh, the Eastern Sierra point of view in Mammoth, there's more people up here hiking, day hiking than has ever happened in the summer. And how many of those people are new to it? And how many are just, you know, not flying somewhere, they're driving, they're driving from LA, but uh, the town here is overloaded. Uh, it's causing problems because we have a lot of dispersed camping available areas to camp, but uh, there's no facilities, they're not set up for the number of people coming up. Uh, this spring, climbing at uh, the Buttermilks out in Bishop uh, was unbelievable that we're coming there, enough to actually, you know, cause major problems and the, the towns are too small. Uh, they don't, not, you know, we're not, Mammoth is used to a lot of people in the winter, but uh, Bishop is not. And uh, so it's caused problems, but it's also fun to see a whole lot of people out doing stuff and camping and, and on the trails hiking. It's, you know, it's definitely, and I, I would, I hope there's a lot of new people. Right. Right. Um, it, I, I had an interesting conversation with, um, we had Hapclop um, on a previous episode um, and we were kind of talking about where he thought he saw the industry going. Um, and he, he kind of, he drew a really interesting comparison to when the North face was starting to now. And he said, I just think the times unfortunately are very similar, right? Um, you know, with, with so much, a, a lot of turmoil politically at that time, uh, you know, civil rights, you know, issues, you know, boiling up, you know, again, um, you know, today as they were in the past, unfortunately, um, we haven't made, made as much progress as we need to. Um, you know, Hap, Hap kind of mentioned it's, it's such an, it's such a similar time for the outdoor industry. Mm. And he saw so much, you know, birth come out of that, like so much energy, so much, um, you know, so many interesting, positive, new, innovative ideas. He kind of sees, you know, something interesting um, brewing around the same time or, you know, currently. Um, and so I think he shares kind of a similar sentiment. There, there could be a really interesting opportunity if we take the chance to pull more people in, right? Yeah. Um, it could be a, a really interesting, um, 
reframing of what the outdoors is um, and, and who participates in the outdoors. So it's definitely a really interesting, an interesting time and an interesting opportunity that, that we need to seize. So yeah, I'm, I, I thought that was interesting, kind of this, yeah. this sentiment that, um, that has been shared before. But um, I'm glad that we could kind of get into present day. We're, we're going to come back to it a little bit, but I wanted to go back in time. Um, if you don't mind sharing, you know, digging, digging down and, and uh, we're going to get into some memories of, you know, your time uh, building wilderness experience. Um, but, you know, we're going to go back and I, I'm curious, what was your first introduction, both of you, um, to, to out, the, outdoor, the outdoors, outdoor activity, um, and to, to gear in particular? Um, so maybe we can start with, with outdoor activity. Um, what, you know, what, I'll jump in because I'm the oldest, so yeah, I have what, a lot more experience than Greg. Yeah, what first, <laughs> what first piqued your interest? Uh, we, uh, both Greg and I, my, my dad uh, loved uh, you know, coming up to Mammoth, but uh, our vacations were camping trips, hiking trips. Uh, he really loved the outdoors. So we started uh, being you know, campers up in uh, areas very young. And uh, so we did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of outdoor things early on. Greg, maybe you have some comments on that because we did those that we did together. Yeah, I think you know, we both grew up hiking and fishing and um, up in the mountains. And we pretty much camped out for the, you know, in tents and then eventually grew into trailers that were up there that we would rent. And um, I think we just got a real love for the outdoors really early on. Um, that we just felt comfortable in the mountains from, from as as kids, and then l- later on, I think Jim got more involved into rock climbing and into caving and into other sports, and then I kind of followed him into those areas, you know. And which was really depressing because everything I did, Greg came in later and did it much better. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. That's what younger brothers do, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I'll take credit for the fact that he was a better client. Yeah. <laughs> um, but well, but uh, business-wise, uh, because I love the outdoors and love climbing and things, I started working with Dick Kelty at Kelty Pack in 1967 or early 68. Uh, and that was, I used to deal with the Hollywood bars all the time because we were their only uh, dealer outside of uh, Colorado mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, so we sold a lot of hardware bags, and, and I would get to talk to them a lot uh, because uh, that was one of my jobs is uh, I, I got to order the sleeping bags, uh, which wasn't very hard. We just like we want 100 with the right zip and 100 with the left zip, and as many as <laughs> you can send us, we'll take them. So, <laughs> but, so uh, you know, you were kind of at least I think most people who are in the outdoor industry, maybe they weren't thinking too much about the gear. Um, but you were in the industry, you were buying. Um, so I guess, you know, well, maybe go, let me go back a little bit. What, what was some of your first introduction to gear, you know, as you were getting out and um, participating in outdoor activities, were there certain companies before you started working um, at Kelty, you know, for, you know, in that capacity, were there pieces of gear that stuck out to you or brands or were you kind of ambivalent to what what brands were even out there at the time well there wasn't you know in the late 60s uh, there wasn't a lot uh, you know sleeping bags from Hollybar were i loved and that was you know i remember saving up a long time to be able to buy a sleeping bag because they're almost a hundred dollars and uh um and ski hut had a few things or a few packs the best backpacks uh were from europe uh Lafuma and malay and those uh 
stoves, outdoor things like that. Well, pretty much everything was from Europe. REI was importing a few little things, but you know, people were making stuff, but it wasn't available very much. I mean, people had little teeny factories uh, like uh, uh, Ski Hut and those, but it, you know, there wasn't a lot of equipment, a lot of uh, army surplus stuff. Right. And that was where you got uh, boots from Europe, Loa boots on uh, those. But um, I remember in the early days, we would just go to like maybe a sporting goods store and buy a rectangular sleeping bag and a, a, a kind of a crummy frame pack and just have a cheap, you know, wool jacket, wool, wool stuff. I mean, the, the early days, we wore a lot of wool because synthetics and you know waterproof breathables weren't even invented by then. And so I think the early days, especially of backpacking, were pretty rough because they were heavy, heavy packs and uh, cold, cold nights. And then I had canvas tents with um, wooden poles. So you, you really had you know, kind of the really rudimentary basics. So I think that's what helped me and NGM, I'm sure, where we just got frustrated with the gear that we were using and we wanted to go farther and faster and higher and the product just wasn't there to help us. So we started creating our own to just for ourselves, make them for ourselves. Right. When, when did you start making some of your own stuff? Not under the wilderness experience, you know, brand obviously, but what, you know, do you remember what some of that first gear was that you started making? Greg, you should be some of you made stuff when you and actually you should tell that story of leaving when you were 17 to travel around the world because uh, you made products for that trip because you had no money. Yeah, I think um, I did buy a Hollybar down jacket and Hollybar down pants from you at Kelty Pack. That was my first experience with down. And then um, we went to a small house up in Topanga Canyon where there was a guy, I think he called his brand Yeti in those days. And we used his sewing machines to make one of the first nylon tents. And because um, we were going to go try and uh, spend some time on Mount Everest as pretty young kids. So um, we made a bunch of our own gear to take on that trip because we couldn't buy the products. They just didn't exist and they weren't light enough. So um, yeah, we, we designed uh, down jackets and some some tents like in 69. And then um, I left. Uh, the, the story that's kind of been told a number of times is that um, Jim went to UCLA. He was in the UCLA Mountaineers. <clears throat> so when I graduated high school and signed up to go to UCLA, he said, well, you should go check out the UCLA Mountaineers. It's really a great place to to learn and hang out with people that you like and you're a climber now. And, and so I went there and the first meeting was, why do you want to go to school? Let's just go to Everest. And so I was like, all right, <laughs> we might as well go. And we, uh, we left like the following week and just hitchhiked across the country, took prop planes over to Belgium and Luxembourg and then bought an old Toyota Corolla station wagon and drove it to Nepal. And, um, it was quite of an experience, but I did get all fails my first semester. <laughs> Maybe I got incompletes. I don't even know. I never went back, so I never found out. <laughs> well, share a little bit more about that, that expedition. I mean, 
at at that age as well. And that's at any age, that's incredible to go and and, uh, just live life like that and and go and go to climb Everest. I mean, how much training had you put in at that point? Well, I I had actually been doing a lot of uh, rock climbing in the Yosemite and um, had done, you know, some big walls and um, we did a lot of climbing in the Sierra. So kind of felt like we knew what we were doing, but in those days, there wasn't a lot of information about going to Everest or what it really meant. We just saw pictures and we may have read, you know, about the, you know, you know, the 63 expedition was probably the last really big one that we would have known before 1970. And, and so we thought it would be kind of a easier, uh, uh, easier than we thought, because our original plan was, hey, we'll just go in there and we'll, we'll just go up to South Call and that'll probably be as high as we can get without any gear. And then we'll, uh, you know, go back down. There had been a book written by Woodrow Wilson Sayer. It was You Pour Against Everest. Is that right, Jim? Maybe you remember it. And he planned to crash a plane on Everest and then climb it. When we finally got to Everest Base Camp, it was just so much bigger than anything we could have imagined. Um, One, the gear we had was really substandard. And we were substandard, and we were really fortunate not to just get killed at the base. And, uh, but we ended up spending a lot of time exploring around. And then after that trip, I had to figure out how to get home from Nepal with no money because um, the, our money had been confiscated when we got arrested. And um, so it was, quite, it was quite an experience to come home to from. <laughs> But then I think at that point, I kind of felt like anything you wanted to do was just possible. You just had to do it. And Jim's always had that attitude where, you know, you never, there's no fear, zero fear. So I was always kind of afraid, but I, I followed him. Well, I, I can't imagine like coming back from that experience and not feeling changed and not like learning something, right? That, that would be so formative. Um, so you feel real, you feel like that really helped propel the direction of, of where you'd go, or at least the attitude or your approach to, to life after that experience. Yeah. When, when I came back, Jim had just become like a the manager of one of the very first outdoor specialty shops in California called the mountain store. And um, he said, why don't you come work for me? And at that point I was already, working on designs for new products for just climbers for us to use. And um, so that kind of got us thrown into the, me thrown into the business itself. And then also into the design of new products because what we were doing was ahead of the product. And so product needed to be developed to be able to do the kind of things we wanted to do, which were faster and uh, lighter. Right. Can can you speak a little bit to the, I guess the the power, the impact of some of these specialty shops? I guess just just to the outdoor industry, especially at that time. Um, I mean, they're. It just seems like they're such a part of the fabric of this industry, and even today, right? They they hold such an important place in the industry, even in a changing landscape. But how important was that for you? And and I imagine for so many other people who got their first introduction to to this industry as a legitimate industry, right? Or legitimate industry, like somewhere where you could actually work and, and, and make a life or make a living and a career. So how, how important was, was that experience at the well, store? 
it was really important. In those days, first starting up in the late 60s, there were very few stores. I think Kelty was the only one in Southern California that actually carried real good, you know, good, the best that you could find in equipment. And we would, uh, we would sell hundreds of pairs of boots on a weekend just because people had no other place they could go do it. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the early 70s, uh, a lot of people who love the sport decided to start stores. And you see the list of dealers. I was looking at a Southern California dealer list that we had from the 70s. And, you know, there's probably 150, I'm guessing, maybe Greg has a better guess, but a lot of stores. They're everywhere. Just the little San Fernando Valley had like five or six stores. So uh, people were opening them all over the country, but first on the West Coast. And it was also where people hung out. Uh, mm. You know, our the first store that uh, Greg and I had, it was, you know, I mean, still get comments of people that, you know, that was the first time they ever saw like a Royal Robins or a Chenard or something because, you know, everybody would just be hanging out in the back of the store, uh, you know, really not hardcore retail. I mean, you know, I would, the fact that we would, you know, people came in and they got beer to drink while they were talking to us. And if we were busy and, you know, we're talking about climbing, uh, they could go figure out what they wanted to buy. And it was more friends and it was a, a really interesting world. And, you know, a lot of those people are people we're still in, in touch with that we met from, you know, customers that would come in and probably spend, you know, two or three hours a day at evenings at our store. Well, that's the, the early, especially shops were really honestly specialty shops. Whereas when, you know, when we had our store, I think you could maybe buy a North Face jacket in one or two other stores in Southern California. And North Face was brand new. They'd only been around for a couple of years. And, and so the, the general public had never seen a good hiking boot. I, I know like in 1970, I think Crosby, Stills and Nash album had Stephen Stills wearing a pair of Loa Scouts on the cover. And as soon as that came out, students just started coming in, you know, can I get a pair of boots like that? And um, they just couldn't buy them anywhere else. They were, there weren't any mail order or online businesses. So you had to go to the specialty shops. And then the specialty shops were really more educational than they were retailers. They were profits going out, you know, talking about outdoor activities. And almost every shop ran some kind of seminars, hiking trips, uh, training, uh, rock, basic rock climbing, you know, everything was community-based. And um, I know I did a little talk a while back on the shop we started, which I think became one of the longest-running outdoor specialty shops in the United States. And and someone said, well, are you sad that it got sold a number of times and it was eventually owned by another group? And um, they said, are you sad that it's no longer around? And I said, well, it hasn't been a specialty shop in 20 years. You know, it's it, when we were there, you couldn't buy the products everywhere else. Now they just sell products that you can buy everywhere else and there's nothing new and they're not catering to any new consumers, just the same old consumers. So, you know, the state of the specialty business started by people like us about our age are old now and they're, they're, they're kind of maybe stuck in their old ways and still thinking that, you know, those brands are the brands you have to have to be specialty, but those brands all have hundred of their own stores and online businesses and outlet stores. And, you know, 
it would be nice to go into a specialty shop today and find some new stuff, but it, I, I don't know any of them. Right. No. No, nobody does that at all anymore. People, you know, and talking to uh, the companies and I worked with, you know, I was working with the dark base and those, you know, retailer wanted to buy the top 10 selling items and that's what they wanted to sell. So every retailer ends up with the top 10 selling items from each brand and new brands are way too much work. You, you know, you need a special person to kind of explain why that's a better product. Yeah. And, you know, that's where I do kind of think there's a huge possibility. You know, people are, some of those brands are doing it online, but, you know, retail stores that could actually talk about new products and new things. Uh, some of the stuff is great and it's impossible to find. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That the changing landscape, especially right now is, is interesting to see how that's going to continue to evolve. But, but I think one of those key ideas of the, the original specialty retail stores is that idea of community, right. And a gathering place. And you, you know, once we get through this COVID situation, when, whenever this happens or whenever that happens, it seems like gathering, I mean, community is so important to people, um, you know, and it seemed like pre-pandemic there, you know, you have companies that try aspire to that, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be that place that people hang out and, but, you know, I, I don't know if it carries the same authenticity that, that it, it, it does, you know, or it did at the time, um, you know, with, with individuals like yourselves. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, this conversation, you know, the importance of some of the specialty retail stores to specific regions. Um, we, we had a, a conversation with the founders of Down Home Sleeping Bags, um, and, and it was Blue, Blue Puma, or Blue Puma, um, and uh, it was Chuck and Denise, um, we, we did an interview with them, um, Chuck Kennedy and Denise Herman, and they were in Arcata and there were no, no specialty retail stores there. And so they had to create their own, the Arcata Transit Authority, where they could sell the products that they wanted to, you know, to, to their, to their friends and, and get the products that they really wanted. And, and I loved their story um, because it really hits home this idea that it's specialty retail was that thing that, that kind of drew in this community and then you started to see brands pop up, right? That was the lightning that struck. And then you started to see these brush fires around and, you know, around, um, you know, these ideas and and community uh, springing up from that. Um, And, and from that decision to start a little specialty retail store, I mean, a a number of brands kind of sprung up in that small town. Um, You know, even, even Yakima racks kind of has its origins, you know, oddly enough in, in Arcata and, um, and so it's, it's interesting that idea of these specialty retail stores, especially in a community that doesn't have access to, to, to gear in any, any other way as, um, as this gathering place and something that can really spur, you know, like really change, change a region, change a community. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if that, you know, you got wind of that, what was happening in, in Northern California at the time. But. Well, we, Northern California was part of our world because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, originally, you know, we, we were a friend. I think another thing that was different, I'll just sort of stick this in, is that all the, you know, we we're all competitors, but we we're all friends. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the retail stores, if we went up and, you know, went up to the North Face, you could stay at their house uh, because you know, nobody had any money. And so that was normal. And at the trade shows at the time, you know, the outdoor industry was the poor people that uh, never got the good booth space, never were taken seriously by any of the sporting goods or ski trade shows. But we were all friends. We worked during the day, you know, blasting the other guy and trying to sell our product. And then, you know, 
we would go hang out with the with the Lowe's and with the you know all the different people from the companies. It was a real community. We all really felt like we were doing something good, and it yep. wasn't just the business part. Pretty much all of our friends, when you look back, were founders of outdoor companies, and or sales reps for all the companies. So it was just like a much bigger community, much tighter knit community. Well, and it seems like it's it's more about enlarging the pie, right? It's like that you could take the approach of there's a limited uh, there's a limited you know uh, you know a, a number of slices, but by supporting each other, right, and bolstering the industry, it's that all all you know rising tide raises all boats, mm-hmm. um, which I think is such a powerful idea, right? And and there's traces of that in the outdoor industry now, and but it seems like that usually happens when there's a larger issue at play, right? Um, which is great, right? You know, monuments under under threat, or you know, it seems like the industry really comes together around some of those larger issues, which which is a great thing. But mm-hmm. um, seems like at that time it was sometimes out of necessity, right? It's like we need to come together, you know, right. because we like each other, but we need to 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 prove that this industry is viable. I don't know if that's yeah, that's true that's, in, in that I case. Think that's very accurate. And it was also a little bit more, um, there's more purity in those days too. I think people were doing it because they, they, they liked the lifestyle and they liked the, the people. It was not quite as corporate as it is today because nobody really got into it to really be rich or to make much money. It was just more to be able to, to, be able to get out into the outdoors. So, you know, it was better than working someplace else if you could work at an outdoor store instead of a gas station you make the same amount of money, but you could, you know, play with the gear and hang out with people that were like-minded. So that whole industry, the culture was very, very much, you know, back to nature, environmentally oriented and, and, and more, more friendly. Oh, so purpose-driven, right? So yeah. values-driven. Um, and it was easy to tell who was part of the business because the trade shows at that time, uh, every single person in every booth would have a suit and tie on. You know, nobody went to the shows without ties on, and the outdoor guys didn't. So if you saw somebody that, that had long hair and a beard and no tie, you knew he was part of your your group. And so it was, you know, simple to, to tell who were your friends and the ones that uh, made fun of us and, and uh, thought we were all kids not knowing what we were doing. Well, well how, do you, how do you tell now the outdoor uniform has changed? It's, it, it all looks, it, it's all trying to mirror that, right? And so now it's hard to tell, like, who's, who's yeah. the corporate versus who's the, the authentic person now. Yeah. Um, it's kind of fun to see that, that outdoor uniform that's <laughs> changed slightly. I mean, the um, authentic one's probably wearing a suit because it's the first one they ever had. Okay. <laughs> Kevin Jorgensen bought his first suit when he had to do a talk at the American Alpine Club a few years ago. <laughs> So, you know, all the suits are wearing, you know, sandals and, and shorts and all the real hardcore guys are starting to get dressed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you mentioned starting your own store and, and, and also having the guiding service. When did those after Mount, or I guess, where does that fit within relation to working at the mountain store? Kind of the service business as well as the retail component. Uh, well, uh the guide service kind of began with my wife at the time. Uh, we started a backpacking uh, guide service to take kids out. She really wanted to take kids out on backpacking trips. It actually started when I was at Kelty. We did a little bit there. And then uh, it, it grew. And, you know, it, Nobody made any money off it, but we did a few trips. And then, uh, then Greg got back from his around-the-world trip. 
And so immediately, you know, we could uh, jump into doing rock climbing classes and mountaineering courses and a lot of the, the things that, uh, that Greg was capable of teaching. And uh, so it started growing and it was a, a pretty active uh, organization. And with this was during the time we were still at the store. Okay. Right. Um, I, you know, I think the origin of wilderness experience, the company uh, is, is really interesting because it, it, it wasn't a product company uh, started as a service business. I'm maybe we can get into this a little bit later, but I'm going to ask the question now. Um, do you think starting as a service business and then evolving into a product company, you know, what do you, what impact did you feel like that had on the company? Most, most product companies start as a product company and then maybe they try to offer services. Um, you did it the other way around. Um, I'm sure that had its advantages. What do you think that did for the DNA of the company and, and the direction? I think it was for us, it was essential because um, we had not only been active in the sport ourselves, and then we were active selling to consumers every day and talking products and seeing what everybody was asking for or was satisfied or not satisfied with. And then we started taking those people actually out into the outdoors on trips and got firsthand feedback from everybody on everything and just saw it. So by the time we actually started Wilderness, we had a very big background in how you know, the market worked and what was available, what wasn't available, what were the price points, what, you know, what brands did well, why, who were the people, who were the players. We, we kind of had the foundation really well sewed up um, before we started sewing. And I think one of the things that the type of trips that we were running were different than a lot of the other brands because the brand that would start with just the hardcore climber guys and making stuff for that group, which is a really fun area, uh, we got to see people that were just normal people that wanted to go backpacking and just wanted to be in the wilderness. They didn't want to, you know, have their life on the line. Yeah. Uh, and so doing our type of thing gave us two different uh, views. And I think that gave us a big advantage of why, why we grew so fast when we started and we were competing against the people that were doing really stuff aimed at the highest level mountaineers, but not to anybody else. Right. Well, we touched on this at the beginning, right? Like focusing on a certain segment and excluding you know, a, a half of the, the country, right? Um, when it comes to the outdoors, um, you know, Greg, maybe you could speak to this a little bit in your current role. Um, and this is probably something that you push up against all the time in, it, you know, at, at Adidas, right? It's like, how much do you focus on the performance, like the, the most extreme, um, you know, the, you know, versus just the, the average person who's going to be the bulk you know, the, the, the bulk of the, you know, your consumer, um, you know, I, I imagine you kind of, you know, fight that every day. Um, but I also imagine that your experience, you know, from, from your beginnings, you know, working with just normal people, taking normal people out backpacking has to be influential to this day, right. Being grounded in, in real people, um, you know, I don't want to say athletes aren't real people, but, but, you know, if that's all you're focused on, that there's kind of a skewed sense of reality there. You know, yeah, I, you know, I do fight that every day and I, I had a great experience. I, I, I worked for Nike for a little while and I started their um, all conditions gear category, which was their first foray into the outdoors. And it was the first time a major, you know, sporting goods brand really 
wanted to do technical product. And so the launch was really more technical with really, you know, interesting, I think, cool products um, that would compete in the specialty market, but also go to a much bigger, uh, broader audience. And I, I, my opinion was that, you know, the broader audience had never actually seen the really cool products that were being made for the specialty shops. So if you could get it to them more, that you would create a new market for that type of product. But in that case, I saw the big company that you know was growing. And at that time, Nike was only a billion-dollar company, only. But um, it just as it found out that it could put ACG on warm-up suits and sell them to Dick Sports, they just started doing more of that. And so that I lost complete interest in it and went my own way for twenty years. And then when Adidas wanted to do basically the same thing, I was able to write the plan for them for how to do it in the United States. And with the idea that you kind of have to be authentic, credible, and really uh, real in the products you make. You can't just be um, fashion. And yet you could bring some fashion to real products. So that was the niche. But as the last 10 years have gone by now, there's more of a pressure to well, let's just sell outdoor looking products to more people who want to look like they're outdoors. So, so again, it's a fight that I've been fighting for an awful long time. And I think maybe because I feel really strongly that there is, there's still a big market for good products for a lot of new people. And there's a lot of people who haven't experienced the stuff that we experienced 40 years ago. So I'm, you know, I'm always disappointed when the vision is always short-sighted and not really what can you do over the next 20 years to make that rise the tides, like you said. I mean, there's you know, such a small percentage of people who are actually using it. Why not give good products to all the people and, 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 and make us – like our feeling always was like if you took kids out, and we learned this from wilderness experience trips, you take kids out – and they have a bad sleeping bag and a crummy pack and, and, you know, they're walking in their tennis shoes. They get blisters. They're cold. They don't like it. It's wet. So they, they never go again. So if you can get them to take products that are actually well thought out and designed, they'll have a better experience. And then they'll tell their friends and their friends and you'll create a new community of outdoor people. Uh, that's a hard sell when you get into the corporate world. Right. Yeah. That's why there needs to be new, more new small companies starting because they can actually do this stuff. Right. And and people are looking for authenticity, right? They want something that's, that's, that's real from real people. And, and I've, I've, I've talked about this on a, with a few people in previous episodes, but this push and pull, it seems like people want brand, but they also want something that's unique and is their own, which are kind of polar opposites. Like those are things that are fighting against each other. Um, but also seems like a really big opportunity for some of these up and coming brands to come in and, and, uh, and do something unique. I, I, that, that would be an interesting perspective, you know, Greg, from, from your point of view, right. It's like the Adidas brand so powerful. Um, but you probably, which people are attracted to, but there's probably a lot of people who want something new. They want something different. They want something that other people haven't discovered yet. Um, and so I imagine you're trying to figure out how do we create that undiscovered feeling, within Adidas outdoor in a way, right? I have something really cool. That's, that's special. Without sacrificing um, the basic foundation of 
performance product. So right. you know, that's, that's always the fight. I think, you know, to circle back to wilderness, which I think was a brilliant thought at the time and still not really well done today. But one of the things that Lori put together was that they, they raised money with people who would sponsor an inner city kid to go on one of our trips. So I know I, I, I led the more adventuresome, you know, cross Trans Sierra or climb the Palisades Glacier or something like that. But, but the, 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 these kids who had never been out and ever, people got together, raised money, and when they hit a certain amount, that brought one kid on the trip and they would, they would donate their money so that these kids could get out there and then we could actually show them a new world. And I remember thinking, at the end of that, if you could just take people out, they would become converts and they would never forget. You know, Jim and I, our, our parents took us out when we were little. So we, we saw that when we were kids, um, we, we would not be able to survive in, you know, inner city environment probably because we never learned how to survive there, but we learned it in the outdoors. So I'm thinking somebody today should be taking more kids on backpacking trips and, and teaching them how cool it is because they just have no experience, even though they might live, you know, two hours away from the mountains. They've never been there ever. Right. It, it seems like, um, I mean, there's so many barriers to entry, you know, and, and some of the barriers are of entry are larger for some people than others. Right. Um, uh, and it seems like it's a brand's responsibility. There's a lot of people that, that, you know, have a responsibility for this, but there's an opportunity for brands to, to not just sit by and say, well, there's nothing we can do. There's an opportunity for brands to step in and, and try to break those down for people. Um, which in the seventies, right. With wilderness experience starting and, um, you know, it seemed like such a, a powerful idea and, and such a powerful idea to this day. Right. I don't know if, if anyone else was doing it at the time. Was that unique? And, um, you know, for a company at that time, for a guide service at the time. Um, and, and I think, you know, with that, I, you know, we can't talk about the history of, of wilderness experience without talking about Lori and, and, you know, that, that idea um, and that being so core. So maybe we, would you mind sharing a little bit about just her involvement in that and how core that idea is to, to the brand? Yeah, Jim, why don't you? Okay. Um, well, I mean, she was, you know, totally dedicated to getting people in the outdoors. And so that made a really big difference because, uh, you know, she pushed us to run a lot of trips uh, when we started doing, uh, you know, harder trips. You know, she thought that everybody should do that too. Uh, and luckily you do see kids today learning to rock climb. But, uh, you know, that was, she was so passionate about getting people into the outdoors that that uh, overrid everything, including the fact that we couldn't make money on a lot of the trips, uh, which made it hard. Uh, and then uh, when she started climbing a lot, then, you know, she pushed more to, to do more climbing trips and uh, to do that. And we were working at the store. And I think the reason that uh, there's a few good guide services out there uh, our world was really different because most guide services stayed as guide services and we probably would have done the same. I think, I think at least there's a really good chance of that. Uh, but unfortunately after we were doing this for a while, uh, that's when, uh, Lori was killed climbing. Uh, and, uh, and so that kind of threw us, uh, 
I don't know how to say it, but definitely threw us under the bus. I mean, it was, you know, about as terrible as you could possibly be because it was the, you know, the three of us doing, working together all the time. Uh, and uh, I think, Greg, you said this in some other interview once, is that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we didn't think, you know, we figured we weren't going to live long. I mean, we were climbing, we were doing hard stuff. Uh, and we just realized that, you know, hey, this this could happen. So it made it easy to, to try doing something that, you know, starting a business. And, you know, it was harder to start a business in those days, I think, than today, because nobody liked the way you looked. You had long hair and a beard. They're not going to loan you money. Uh, <laughs> and so I think, you know, that whole experience of going through such a traumatic experience probably, you know, led us to be able to make, you know, to, to jump in and think, well, we can start a company and make stuff. Yeah, it was a, a, a rude awakening for really young people to see like your best friend or your wife killed with you. And then to realize that you know, you're mortal. And, but it was really an early awakening that this, this is probably going to happen to us anyway. So we might as well take every risk we can take because what do we have to lose? We've already lost everything that we really loved. So let's just go for it. And it did give us a lot more, um, I think, just go for it attitude. And, and the times were much tougher. Remember, there was a big recession going on in the early 70s. And there was, I think, interest rates were... 14 to 18% house. If you bought a house was 12% interest on your home loans. So it was not an easy time compared to today. I mean, I right. There, there's a lot more resources right now, you know, to, to guide you through the process and, and help people through that. You know, they didn't have the internet to look up. How do I start a business? Right. Where, where do I get a business license? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You've got successful companies. You could say, well, look, if we do really good, we could be the next North Face or here's right. what these guys But in those days, you know, you went and said, we want to be the next North Face. <laughs> yeah, they're not making any money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what a goal. Yeah, great goal there. Yeah, that's it, it really was that the industry hadn't really been validated, validated, right? I mean, which is interesting because you had that first generation, right? You had Jerry and Holy Bar, um, but I guess it just didn't have the widespread appeal at that point um, or the, the recognition that that was a legitimate industry. And, and maybe it's like up until this point, it kind of feels like now it's the industry has kind of come into, it probably happened earlier, but it seems like the, the day that we're living in now, people recognize the force that it is. Um, right. you know, people probably recognized that a few years ago, but, but it seems like right now people recognize the the power that it has and, and, and the influence, but. Um, and that you know certainly the nikes and the adidas's and you know a lot of other companies saying this outdoor business should be one of our pillars of business and mm-hmm. you know multi-billion dollar business units and so uh, yeah it's and, and then then you get you know the ralph lorenz saying i want to be in the outdoor industry and you get all the fashion people going yeah we're going to be outdoor oriented too and because they see there is you know some some movement there and and, then people do love it. So, and it's also a very easy industry to promote from images because everybody loves great outdoor images and the serenity and the beauty and the grandeur. And so it's a, it's a easier business to promote than than some others. 
Right. I was going to say, yeah, being able to sell the outdoors, I'm, you know, sell in, in a positive sense, right? It's like, uh, there's, there's so much beauty. It, it doesn't, if you're a salesperson and you're selling outdoor experiences, that's, that's what you want to sell. Not some kind of, you know, junky product that people don't, but don't actually need, but selling an outdoor experience, that's, that's a lot easier to, to sell, I would imagine, but sorry. I, I was going to say, I think, uh, over the last, it's not that many years that, uh, the business has grown so much uh, that I think a lot of people now are looking at it as it's a big, big, big. I mean, I, uh, what was it? 2000, around 2000. So that's actually, that is 20 years ago now. Uh, but when I did the, uh, the original plans for the North Face for the acquisition, you know, it was a hard, hard push to convince them they could get to 400 million, you know, and now it's what, 4 billion, you know, and it's just, you know, amazing how much the business has grown and uh, which again makes it easier for small companies because the big guys now, it's really hard in a big business to make a change. Right. Well, yeah. I, I bet n- neither of you could have imagined um, the industry being in a position where you have the corporate outdoor companies and you have the, uh, you know, the authentic upstart outdoor companies and kind of at odds, right? Um, that probably wasn't even on your radar, right? That being a possibility, right? Where you have the big bad outdoor company. I don't, I'm not saying any, you know, I'm not going to name names if there is one, but, but it's, it's probably interesting to, to be, you know, in the industry now and seeing that there's, there's that push and pull where, you know, where you were coming up, everyone was the upstart. Right. Yeah. You know, there was nobody big. Right. Companies, I must say, someone like North Face, who had that same foundation, they've done a really brilliant job of continually focusing on real core users at the high end. So I always say it's like a scale. And the, the, the more you sell to the common, you know, good, you, that's, that doesn't weigh as much as this really hardcore stuff. So you want to keep it balanced. So you don't need a lot of hardcore stuff to balance out a lot of streetwear and basic sportswear, but you do need some. Otherwise the scale tips and you look like you're, you're just another clothing company or something like that. So North Face has done a great job of balancing it. And Patagonia has done a brilliant job of getting behind the concept of environmentalism and making people want to be part of it because if you don't love the outdoors, you're not going to vote for the outdoors. Right. And so I think they've got that long-term vision that, that succeeds. But a lot of the other companies, you know, you, you don't really know where they're headed or what they're doing, what their real, real foundation is other than the marketing story. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, grounded. Right, right. Well, I know this has kind of been a winding conversation. You know, the, the chronology, people are going to have to, piece that together. But I, I like being able to bounce between, you know, where you've been and where you are now and, and being able to reflect on that. But um, so I'm going to jump back again, um, you know, some of the first wilderness experience product. I know some of that came, you know, you, you had both been working, dabbling in, in creating your own products and, and creating product. Um, you, but, you know, kind of listening through and reading the history, you know, you, you had a first order, right? And is, was that the, you know, that first in order, is it um, Iger that yeah. approached you and, and asked for, for an order? Was that the thing that kind of jump started this idea of, well, okay, we're, we're doing, we're in the service business, but we could actually go and, and make real product and, and someone's coming and is willing to pay for it. Well, we were kind of like forced into it in a way and that um, Iger Mountain Sports came to us and said, 
we, we're not able to get our Malay packs that they normally distributed in the United States. There was some problems and they couldn't import any. And they said, could you make us a line of Malay packs that we could then buy from you and sell? And we thought, that's a great idea. We'll design up a line and we'll take it to them and then we'll figure out how to make it. And so we designed- We had a, uh, just to interrupt there, we had a sewing machine we put in the back of the store that we made little things with. So that's how you know Greg was able to make make this. So we, we had been sewing like little stuff sacks and dumb things. So we just kind of figured out how to do it, basically taking apart malaise, copying patterns, making them maybe modify them a little bit. Um, pretty much when you try and copy something, it never looks like it anyway. So you you know it was it was close. But when we finally finished everything and took it to them to sell, they said, Oh, sorry. Um, Malay decided they're going to ship us again, so we don't need any of your stuff. So we spent all this time creating products and money to, you know, to build them. Then we just said, well, why don't we take it to some shops and see if they'll buy any? And um, that's what we did. And we went, I think one of the first shops was West, West Ridge in Santa Monica, which was the core climbing shop in town. And um, the, the owner just said, well, actually jokingly said, Oh, just what we need, another pack company. Because at that time, nobody really cared about packs that much. And, um, but they bought them and they started selling. And that was the foundation of starting Wilderness Experience products. With that, you know, why, you know I'm going to ask that question. Another backpack company. Like, what, what do you feel like it was that made it different? And, and we'll talk about some of the core products over the years, too, of the company. Um, but over your time, you know, creating new products, what do you feel like it was? There, there were a lot of backpacks, right? Um, and there's a lot of backpacks now. What, what do you feel like made the product different and valuable? There's you know, so much stuff out there. We, we don't need more stuff, um, right. but, but good product is, is there, there always good. There weren't a lot. You know, I think that was one of the things, and, and there probably isn't a lot today. There were a lot of things being made, but they weren't really good. Mm. And I think uh, that's one of the advantages we had from the store is, you know, we were trying to sell these other brands. We had Alpine Designs and we had, you know, whatever else was out there at the time. And customers would say, this isn't right, or we'd be using it and realize this isn't right. So I think that when Greg first started uh, coming up with ideas, it was based on first what he would use and what would, uh, what would work, but also what we knew customers were really looking for, people who are active. And uh, that gave us a big advantage. And I think the other thing is so it was a good time to start, but we were so passionate about it. I think today, if you were starting a new company and you walked into specialty shops and found the owner and just told them, you know, your heartfelt reason why you think you're making better products and why it's so great and how, you know, you're trying to make it better and you want their input. And it's, it's infectious, you know, people like, enthusiasm and they like authenticity and so I think our passion probably drove us more than just the products. The products were great but the passion was through the roof. Right. Oh, I love that. Um, what, what year was that? 73. 73. Um, and you know, you know, after that moment, I guess maybe you could share a little bit about, you know, some of the, I guess some of the successes, you know, what are some of the products that really hit um, you know, what were some of those high points, you know, as you were kind of getting your stride, um, you know, you got some of these first customers, um, 
you know, maybe maybe what were some of the, the the milestones that you hit over those next few years? You know, I I I think we just dove into it, and we, um, you know, Jim's kind of the go for it guy, and he rented a thousand square foot building, and we put in a sewing machine or two, and we got a friend of ours, Diane Desmond K, to come and help sew with us, and. Um, we made some packs, but the packs themselves probably wouldn't have supported us in the beginning. So we basically talked to anybody and everybody about making their products. We, we worked a little bit with, um, with Chenard Equipment, with uh, Tom Frost on working on some of their early packs. And we worked with uh, trying to make stand-up shorts, which didn't work out. We were, we were willing to try to make anything until it, we got the momentum of the packs going. And we created a, Jim's design. It was a, he realized from cutting that if you just cut these squares out of a piece of material and folded it together, it would make a square box. And the scraps that you cut to make a box would make the, cover the shoulder straps. And so we were, that, that was like a $12, $12.95 retail day pack made out of 1,000 denier Cordura double and triple stitched with nylon thread. So it was made to last forever, but it was relatively inexpensive. And that was not in the market at that time. Cheaper packs were really made out of really cheap materials. And then I think one of the big breakthroughs was when we did the clutter sack, which was a modern version of an old European rucksack style, but made with modern materials and some new shapes and sizes at the right time, at the right cost. That became a really big seller, and all of the stores at some points had to have a clutter sack to be authentic. And I, I know REI brought them in, and you know, EMS had them, and every every major retailer bought the clutter sack, and it was that kind of then started us. And then we were really early on in making uh, internal frame packs. But what we kind of moved over, we still made the mountaineering packs like Low Alpine. Did, but we started making travel packs, so uh, internal frame packs that you could zip, uh, close the back so shoulder straps and everything would be hidden, and you could check it on a train or throw it in a bus without having parts get stuck. And so we kind of pioneered a lot of that early um, travel pack business. And I think uh, some of those, the Europa was a was one one of the first, and um, some others that like like that really really sort of set the stage for a lot of uh, uh, copying. And, you know, people always say, well, it's, a, it's flattering to be have your designs copied. Well, yeah, unless you're the designers. Yeah. <laughs> it is flattering anyway. You know, but I think we saw copies of the clutter sack. Even today, there's, you know, 100 copies of the pack. So um, we, we were doing something right that people really wanted, and we just hit the right areas. The other thing that we had that's very different from most of the, you know, at least the brands that I know of today is that we had to learn how to sew. Uh, and there was no, you know, there was nobody to go talk to to teach you to sew. So, you know, we bought a sewing machine. We looked at, you know, a couple of friends that made a little bits. But to start a factory, everything we did uh, was from scratch. I mean, we'd never worked in sewing factories. So, you know, I remember it was a big deal when we finally realized you could bundle like 10 packs together and so you know i put all zippers in 10 first and then little things like that that are just normal in production that 
we learned from scratch. So it also allowed us to do some things that, uh, you know, that other people weren't doing because, you know, we didn't know any better. So we would just try stuff. It also gave us the option, which I used to hate, uh, was Greg would design something, we'd start selling it, he'd go out and come back, go, okay, that's wrong, we need to change it. Like, well, no, not yet, can't we wait a week? You know, uh, but that was a big deal. Today, companies are working on, you know, 18 month lead times, uh, and they're not gonna change it. If, if something didn't work right, we would change it in the production line that week. And that, right. that was a big advantage and could still be an advantage for people today. Right. Well, you're so much cl- closer to your manufacturing, right? It was all, you know, you, you could just walk downstairs, right? And uh, Well, even, even more than that, uh, you know, the early days, Greg was the one sewing them. Right. Yeah, I love I love that story. I, I know it's it's in a in a video that you put together, but learning how the sewing machine, you know, worked, right? And taking it apart and uh you know, taking a shot every time you, you got I don't know if you, you got stumped or or you know what it was, what was the trigger for, for taking a shot? But I mean I thought I think what really got me is we had rented a little sewing machine that the, the one of the owner the founder of class five made us he had to fly down from berkeley to help us get it because he thought we were too stupid to buy a sewing machine that we would buy the wrong one or we'd overpay so that was kind of the camaraderie of the day yeah and, and i remember looking at it thinking okay i understand how to sew you know the pedals and stuff but i don't understand how it ties a knot in the thread i mean when you think about it, a needle's going up and down and it's tying knots. I'm like, how's that, how's that work? So I, I remember sitting down one night with a bottle of Jack Daniels and just saying, okay, well, I'll take it apart and see how that works. You know, take it, the housing, see all the gears and see how the rods are working and, and then I have another shot and I take another piece out. And by the end of the evening, I drank most of the bottle of Jack Daniels, probably all of it. And, um, but I couldn't, in <laughs> any stretch of the imagination put it back together so i remember putting it all into a box just all these parts taking it down to downtown la to the garment center where these guys had been making clothing for 50 years old world garmentos and saying um i took the the sewing machine apart to figure out how it worked and i think i understand that completely but I have no idea how to put it together. <laughs> the old guy was like, man, no one has ever done that in all my years in the sewing business. And he was like one of the original, you know, sewing machine salespeople in Los Angeles. And I, I think we bonded really close because here's like this young climber, you know, hippie taking an interest in the garment business and the sewing business, which nobody would ever have done in those days. And then they started to help us teach us how to do stuff and how to, how to get involved. So we, we would create the new way of manufacturing because we just had to be creative even in the manufacturing side of things, not just product. And um, I think Jim came up with this idea. We were making shoulder straps out of all the regular material. And that in those days, everybody's shoulder straps were usually the color of the bag that the pack was because you cut it out of the same fabric at the same time. But we realized that if, if we made all the shoulder straps out of black material, we could make all the shoulder straps and then put them on any color packs we wanted. And I think we were probably one of the very first companies to like mass produce their 
their shoulder straps that could go on any of the different day packs. And that's, that's saved production time and kept prices down. It, it seems like um, the companies that are really innovating or creative, creating new product, um, they're not necessarily creating a, like an entirely new product or category or it's, it seems like it's more incremental. It's more, we're inventing a new process or we're applying a new material that otherwise hadn't been used in that way. And, and it seems like the companies that are willing to drill down to that level, like you were and figure out how does the sewing machine go together? That's where you start to, to innovate, right? Cause you understand the thing at, at the construction level, how this things comes together rather than swapping out a pocket here or there, ch- changing a colorway or swapping in and out a new zipper, right? You're, you're going to another level um, to figure out how to, how to, you know, make this thing new or really innovate, right? And innovation is a word that's get thrown around all the, all the time. But I, I think when people hear innovation, they think something that people have never seen before, a new product. Um, but I don't know, maybe that is, that's your experience, but it seems like it's more applying something in a new way, you know, or slightly different. Yeah, I was going to say, other than just the designing of the products, which, you know, a lot of it was very innovative. I think that initial contact we had with the, the hardcore sewing guys these guys were making, you know, dresses and things where, you know, labor rate cutting at two cents made a big difference. Uh, so we started with really worrying about costs. And even when we weren't making very much, and, you know, when you look at a lot of our original designs, they were done where, you know, and because Greg was paying for the material. And so they were made so that we didn't waste material. You know, is it better to put in an extra seam here or is it better to cut it and not make it? And that became, you know, I don't know why that became part of our culture, but we really did worry about costs, I think, more than, than probably almost anybody in those days. No. I think probably we had, by, by the late 70s, we had the most advanced sewing factory in the United States, as far as I could tell. Jim, you know, ran the production and he set up uh, piece studies and time studies and how to improve sewing and how to spray silicone on the thread so it wouldn't melt when you sew faster and just all sorts of innovations in that production side of things and, and streamlining it. And then our, our design center, if I had it today, I'd start a brand new company because we had such amazing talent that we brought in. People came from all over the world and they were usually um, women who had, you know, escaped from Vietnam and came in from Iran and different places. But in their world, they would dress every day or they would make all their kids dresses. If they had a wedding, they made the wedding dresses. They didn't have the money to go buy it or they wouldn't even conceive of that. But when you wanted to make a down jacket that had no external seams, they could just sew it up and figure it out. And we were able to just crank out beautiful products, um, one of one of a kinds. And nowadays, that would require somebody having an idea, going to Asia, sitting down with the factory, having them put their plans and thoughts into how they would want to make it so that they could sell it to you for more money or the right amount. And, and, and it's taken away that hands-on approach to both the pattern making and the construction of a product is now in the, in the hands of contract sewing companies in Asia. I mean, there's benefits, but there's also some, some losses there. Right. Well, we, I, I think we can trace a lot of the success back to a few of the, the points that, that we've talked about. Um, 
you know, and over the, the years, it's, I, I, I seem to remember you mentioning, it seemed like every year you were moving, right? you just growing, outgrowing. Um, and, um, you know, what was that experience like? Just, just seeing the success, what did it feel like? Uh, you know, looking people back, are, people are I'm buying amazed, our stuff. I'm amazed we did it. And I think one of the things when Greg and I were, you know, trying to record some of the history, uh, I would have guessed that we were in each building for two to three years. And it was great that pointed out, well, I've got nine different addresses here over a six-year period. So we moved more than every couple of years. And yeah, it was it was exciting. But we, there was such a demand because we were selling stuff. And then, you know, we need more space. And we just kept doing it. And it was, you know, very, very active. It was also good for the people working with us because when we first started, it was, you know, we had, Diane was our only employee and we just underpaid her, but uh, we were able to keep like great people because we kept growing. So, you know, somebody like Diane, who was a seamstress, all of a sudden became, you know, in charge of the three operators. And later she became in charge, you know, eventually of, you know, a 50,000 square foot, few hundred employee factory. In fact. So it was really good for the people working there. So we saw that, that people we knew who were, you know, just climbers and friends, all of a sudden we could afford to pay a lot more money. And that always felt good. Because at first we were making people work way too hard for the amount that we could afford to pay. Right. And I don't know, it was just, they, for me, the excitement of doing it was was just so much fun and jumping into new categories. Uh, I think, and maybe this is a good time to, to go back to that. We had uh, moved in and uh, with a sales organization nationwide called Roundtable Associates, and they were selling Snow Lion uh, products at the time. And Snow Lion made sleeping bags and jackets uh, and tents, and they didn't make any packs. So his sales organization, which was nationwide, did both. So he sold our packs and their sleeping bags, tents, and things. And at the big trade shows, we would do our booths next to each other. And so retailers would pretty much buy both. And they, they were like probably the hottest brand at the time uh, just because their products were really excellent and their prices were really low. And then at one trade show, we showed up, I think it was in Chicago, and the, uh, the Snowline booth that we were setting up next to, uh, all the salesmen that we were sharing and we were friends with were saying, well, it looks like our company has no money, that my credit card's no good. They wouldn't let me stay in the hotel. You know? And Snowline declared bankruptcy the first day of the, the trade show. Wow. And it wasn't a reorganization. It was, we're going to shut down today. And uh, so we're with all our salesmen who, you know, are, you know, that's, you know, more than half their income. We were probably a quarter of their income or so, maybe a little more. But uh, they were saying, look, I've got people that want to buy this. And for some reason, I, I think we went to dinner with a bunch of people and kind of said, well, I guess we could make tents and sleeping bags and bags. I mean, we know how to make packs. It can't be that hard. <laughs> uh, and I think also that there was such a, a gap in the market with they were one of the very first of the synthetic polar guard sleeping bags that were made and north face was the, one of the, those two and um so there was a gap of supply that if we could make a polar guard sleeping bag we would be able to sell it into that void and so we just dove into figuring out how to make uh, synthetic sleeping bags and um we, i think we ended up uh, opening a couple other factories that we just made sleeping bags in. We had a contractor in San Francisco who one day we went up there to check on our production and the owners 
had disappeared. They were, they were drug addicts and they, they just like left. So there was 40 or so sewers sitting there and nobody was paying them and they didn't know what to do. So Diane just moved to Berkeley or Oakland at the time. And we took over that factory, went, took over the lease, paid everybody. And we were in business making sleeping bags like the next week with a whole new setup. And, you know, th those things happened all the time where we just kept adding more production and more space and, and then, then diving into the design process. Like how could we make those bags better? How could we make them lighter? How could we make them warmer? Um, how do we make them waterproof? We, I think we might've been the first company to make uh, seamless Gore-Tex sleeping bags so that the outer shells could be used as your bivy shelter and you didn't have to carry an extra sheet. And uh, we were using a reflective aluminum that had been developed by some aerospace groups for insulation and in planes. We were putting that in between the sheets to make vapor barriers that came from originally from Stephenson, his original design. So we were like pulling in ideas from everything we had learned before and putting them together into a new way of doing it. And, um, it was pretty state of the art at the at the time we did it. Right. What and so all of the success, all of this growth leads you to um, the decision to to go public, right? Well, um, we've been going up till then. Everything was done with debt because uh -huh. we started with no money. Yeah. Uh, and so we were, you know, that was probably, you know, I don't know, half my job was uh, spending time talking to banks. And in those days, again, there's no online thing. You went to a bank, asked if you could talk to somebody and they would laugh at you and you'd go to another one and another one. And uh, uh, so we were constantly borrowing money and, we were, and the debt was just growing and growing and the business was growing. And anybody that's run a business, I don't think you realize it until you actually do it, that as you grow, you need a lot more money, even if you're making money because your inventories go up, your receivables go up, everything goes up. And we had pushed it probably farther than is reasonable uh, by the time uh, that we decided we needed to do something. And there was a possibility of just selling the company at the time because the outdoor companies were starting to do better. And, uh, you know, a few years before, that's when Hat Top had bought uh, the North Face and a couple other people had looked at buying companies. Uh, uh, but the idea of, of going public, and at the time, nobody was going public. It was, you know, you know, the interest rates were outrageous and business was not good. And then Nike went public and it was, you know, I know they were the first sporting goods company, but they were one of the, one of the first IPOs in like a couple of years. And, you know, we kind of looked at it and go, well, Nike can do it. We can do it. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, we copied their whole, you know, now looking back, it was crazy to think that we could go public. <laughs> it's not even a real possibility. Uh, and also we had no money. So we found we had attorneys that uh, would get all the work to get paid out of the proceeds of the, the going public because we couldn't afford to pay them in advance. I mean, we had no money. Um, and if it wouldn't have worked, it would have just been gone. I mean, it was just that, that we, because I'm not sure even what we ran up, but my guess is we ran up a, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in legal and all the other expenses. And, uh, and then when it went public, those were all paid. But uh, yeah, it was a, a way of, uh, of, finally having money so we could keep growing because we still had the demand. We still could keep, you know, we wanted to keep growing and the idea of not growing would have been another choice. Level off. 
it was pretty thrilling because here we were pretty young um, and we're getting checks for millions of dollars. <laughs> it was like, you know, we're dirtbag climbers. You know, I've been living in my car and, you know, and all of a sudden we had, we paid off all our debts and we had net worths that were pretty substantial for young kids. And um, it felt pretty darn good. But the downside is we were the only public company in the outdoor industry. So because we had to publish all of our financials or anything, if we had a bad quarter or we had something going wrong, all of the competitors were saying, yeah, well, those guys are going out of business or there was some, there was always some drama involved and we were the only company that had to be honest about what we were doing. And we knew all the other companies were totally inflating what they were saying they were doing or how successful they were doing, but we had to be dead honest. And it was, it was, Kind of a rude awakening. People knew every how much money you made, how much you took out of the company. You know, why are you selling your stock? That kind of stuff it was uh, interesting times. And then we had then he with a, a board of directors with outside directors started to have, take. You know, well, what are, what are you doing for the shareholders? You know, why do you want to make this? Uh, you know, geodesic dome tent. Uh, you're not going to make any money on it. I don't think we should do that. We should probably you know, make more basic day packs and, you know, get shareholder um, rewards up. And, and so we, we, went, we went from being a really specialty outdoor, you know, lifestyle for us into a corporate you know, environment where we were forced into becoming corporate citizens and working with on that level. Right. I'm, I'm trying to imagine a company now, what, what would be a comparable company now to, to wilderness experience, you know, going public, what, what would be the equivalent today for reference? You know, and it's hard because North Face was pretty small. We were maybe about half the size of North Face, maybe a, or so, so that'd be a pretty big company today, yeah. but I guess it would be like um, Osprey or something like that, mm-hmm. getting an IPO for <laughs> half a billion dollars or something, you know, yeah. it, It'd be enough where everybody would go, how did they possibly do right. that? You know, I think we won an award from early winners, Bill Nikolai, through a oh. party. It was kind of a, a little bit of a backhanded compliment. He, he gave us the trophy for the greatest sales job in the outdoor industry, which was <laughs> selling it to the public. Yeah. Selling a third of our company for whatever number of millions at all. <laughs> well, did, do you feel like, I mean, it sounds like things kind of changed after that. And, and was that some of the, I guess, what, what led to both of you kind of going different paths and doing different things? Uh, you know, you, you both stayed with the company for, I guess, how, how many years did each of you stay after that point? This was in um, 81. Probably right? for, for me for two more years. Of, you know, cause there's two different things. One, even before we went public, it was becoming a big company. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was, even if we wouldn't have gone public, we had, you know, management teams. We had, you know, hundreds of employees. It was the world had already changed from the way it was before. The, the super fun part of, you know, Greg designing a pack, B trying it, and going out and, you know, making it and selling it. So already getting big is hard. And as as Greg said, you know, we're in our twenties, you know, and all of a sudden we've got hundreds of employees, and we've got, you know, at one point we had, you know. Um, you know, issues with, with employees and we had different factories. And so there was already a lot of 
stress being added to a world that, you know, that neither of us were prepared for, neither has ever worked in a big company. And all of a sudden, you have to worry about labor law and, uh, you know, people suing us. We'd never, you know, the idea of people suing us. And I remember Greg had to go give depositions on their labor law things. And, uh, it's like, you know, so there was a lot of stress already. Then going public added that whole outside investor part, even though it was, you know, we still own two thirds of the company. People, you know, invested money, obviously wanted to be heard and do it. And so, you know, where in the past, Greg and I would have disagreements about how to do stuff and we would just solve it. The other problem of going public is all of a sudden your net worth is high. And it's like, you know, just like you see these guys who win the lottery, they go, well, I'm going to keep working. And then the next day, you know, Greg would say, well, I want to make them in blue. And I'm like, well, I don't like blue. I'm going to quit. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot easier to walk away from a business if you think you're rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that'd be kind of my view of what happened because a lot of the conflicts Greg and I would have in the past were normal, you know, two different people running a business who had different opinions. And usually the answer turned out to be good. Um, in, in, in retrospect, and I've, you know, we've talked to a lot about it with what we know today, if we knew what we know today, not just where the business and everything was going to go, but just had more sophistication with businesses and running companies, we would have gotten, we would have gotten together closer and worked our way through all the problems. And I think wilderness would be a really, be a really successful company today. But we didn't know. We were too young and too naive and too, you know, set up. I, I know one of the problems that came up was that the with investors and boards, all of a sudden there was, you know, investment banking people who were saying, well, what's your, which, what's your profit going to be for the second quarter? And what are sales going to be in the third quarter? And how are you going to get those up? And your margins aren't right. And you've got to get this. They're always pushing because their interest is only in making the stock go up. They don't really even care how that will affect you next year, six months from now. And so one of the ways to really increase margins and lower costs, and, and I was kind of involved in it, it's like I was beginning to do a lot of work in China in creating products and working with um, Snowline that was doing it. And then the founder started a sourcing company and we were making some products over in China. And I was going to Jim saying, you know, we could do all of this work with five people instead of 300 people by outsourcing it to China. And Jim said, yeah, but we'd lose the flexibility and the ability to create on the fly and um, we wouldn't be a domestic made company. And there's a lot of benefits there. And so we couldn't quite balance it. We probably, you know, it's simple now. We'd, I would have said, well, let's just do half and half or let's, let's do something. We would have gone, okay, yeah. But at that point, there was a real conflict on where the overall direction of the production should go. And I felt strongly about taking it to Asia. And Jim felt strongly about keeping it domestic. And I think in the end, Jim just said, well, I'm, I don't want to be involved with a company that's making things overseas. I think. <laughs> well, or, you know, I don't want to be in a call, involved with a company that won't just listen to me on all my ideas. <laughs> you know, uh, the other thing that uh, and I think that's actually right, and I feel Greg's pretty accurate on that. So I felt pretty dumb when I went to Jansport and closed down their factories and moved it all to Asia, right? as my next yeah. job. But, um, the best but was, part about that, though, you have to tell is that 
you, we hadn't really been talking for a while and you were at Jansport. We were still brothers, but we weren't like friends. And uh, he called and said, would, you know, we're not able to make these packs very competitively in Washington. Could you make some packs for us in Asia? Cause I was doing all of my work in Asia then. And we came back making a new pack for uh, Jansport, which eventually made it impossible for them to compete with the imported product that was better, better sewn and faster and much easier to manage. So Jim essentially did to Jansport what I was trying to do to wilderness um, 20 years earlier. Mm. Yep. So, and another thing which I haven't, you know, we haven't talked about this and I think it's really interesting is we, we were young. We'd never worked at other places. We'd never done anything. And then all of a sudden we had a board of directors and because the, it was a really cool brand and we got, you know, board of directors, people that were great. Like one of us, the president of Coca-Cola on our board of directors and things. And I think something, and maybe you have an opinion on this, Greg, but it's weird to be a 20 year old. And then you have somebody that you're, you know, you know, is, you know, president of Coca-Cola says something. It's really hard to have the confidence yeah. uh, to say you're wrong. And I think that that was a, an issue is that our board of directors were all old. They were all, you know, they, to me, remind me of my dad, you know? Yeah, they know what they're talking about. They've done all this stuff. Maybe we're wrong. And now you see some of these guys that have gone public and they're saying, no, you got, you know, you can tell Zuckerberg's not going to listen to somebody and say, well, maybe he's older and he's smarter. I'll listen to him. And I think that was one, a problem also that uh, yeah. with being public. Yeah. Well, you, it, it is interesting, your whole path, right? Because you, you built this, you know, really large business, um, like you said, in your 20s. And then you've still gone on and done so many other things. Like we could do a whole part two um, just on that. I know we've, we've taken quite a bit of your time already. But, you know, if we could just share a, at least a little bit of kind of, you know, where you've been since then, right? Um, you've, you've both gone on to do some, some amazing things with, with great brands, um, but I think it would be important to, to touch, touch on that as well, kind of what, what you've been doing since Wilderness Experience. And then maybe we can kind of wrap it up by uh, talking about the, the rebirth of, of Wilderness. Yeah. Okay. Well, you want me, I'll start again because I'm older. <laughs> I've done less than Greg, so it'll go faster. Uh, but one of, the, <laughs> one of the things when I left Wilderness, uh, I still had that love of mountaineering and working, especially in the last, you know, years of it, we were working a lot and not, not playing as much. So, uh, the wilderness had had a couple of outdoor stores. So when I left, I bought the outdoor stores. So I had an outdoor mountaineering store up in Mammoth and one in the San Fernando Valley. So I ran those, uh, and I got to finally go on an expedition to South America and do some fun things and then gotten tied in with, uh, one of our, uh, or actually one of our top wilderness experience reps, Larry Harrison. And we started a sales organization uh, because I also thought that was a cool thing because sales reps seem to always make money whether the companies do or not, you know, because they get paid. And we started picking up brands and actually formed a pretty large organization doing uh, cycling. Uh, we had a ski, a few ski lines, mountaineering lines, different things. And one of our lines we did was Jansport, which in in the uh, you know early '80s, and that was really really big. And Jansport was owned by Jansen, which was owned by Wrangler. And DF Corporation that owned Wrangler Jeans and Lee, or Lee Jeans bought Wrangler. They got Janssen, and they also got Jansport. Mm -hmm. And you knew they didn't really want Jansport because it was an apparel company. They didn't know anything about the outdoor. 
And Jansport had a couple of offices, one in Seattle and one in Wisconsin. So they were looking for somebody to combine those. And even though they didn't say it, it was obvious to me the idea was let's combine it with a nice little working thing. We can just sell it off and get rid of it. Uh, but the fun of uh, doing it, uh, you know, I'd always had this goal because Wilderness didn't make it to $100 million. And that was kind of my goal. I want to run a $100 million company. So Jansport was that. So I got to do that and combine them. But uh, part of the deal at VF Corporation, I don't know what they do today. It'd be interesting. But uh, at that time when they were probably, you know, three billion, four billion, I'm not really sure. Um, they did not have an acquisitions committee. And so somebody in the company would come and say, hey, you know, this is a cool brand. This is a cool thing. You should buy it. And if you could convince the top guys that it was good, they would say, well, okay, put a plan together. And, uh, and so I did that with the North Face. That was my first one. It was when they, at one point, were for sale. I put a plan together, said, here's where they can do in sales and everything. And they turned it down. Uh, but the next year, North Face continued to have problems and losing money. So I put another plan together. And the way the VF system worked, uh, which I think is incredibly smart, I hope they still do it, um, is without an acquisitions committee, somebody like me did a plan for North Face and said, okay, you can buy it. It's going to cost us a hundred and some million dollars, but it can go to $450 million in five years. And they would say, oh, well, okay. If the, you know, they would look at it and if it made sense, they would say, okay, except the person putting the plan together has to run it. So, you know, I would run it and my pay would be based on hitting that number. So unlike an acquisitions group that would say, oh, we're going to take it to a billion dollars. And then they just walk away and somebody else has to fail at it. But, you know, for me, I wanted to make the, the goal high enough that they would buy it because otherwise it's not worth it. But I also wanted to make that goal low enough that I could beat it and get a big bonus. Hmm. Um, and so I think it's a super way to run acquisitions. And I, I hope that since I'm still a stockholder, I hope they are still doing that. So I did that with the North Face. I did that with Eastpac uh, and then with Kipling. Uh, and then I was on the acquisition group for Vans. On each of those times when you're in there, your bonuses are based on you know hitting those numbers. And luckily, uh, we exceeded them every single time by big amounts. And, uh, but I got to be, I, I went to Europe when Eastpac, when they bought Eastpac, uh, because we were waiting for North Face to clear and that one was being held up, but the Eastpac purchase came through and Eastpac wasn't very big in the United States, but in Europe, it was, uh, you know, $250 million business. So it was huge. And, but it was owned by Coleman and uh, Coleman ran it through all their offices. And when they sold it to VF, they said, you know, You've got six months to move out of every one of our offices. So I had to go over to Europe and I don't know nothing. I speak no other languages and I know nothing about, you know, Europe, but I had to open offices in 26 countries and hire country managers within that six month period. So, you know, it was just so much fun. And it, it was a cool brand because they, you can do advertising and things in Europe that you can't get by with doing in the United States. And it was so challenging. And the North Face came through. But I had no no desire, even though everybody knew I wanted to be president of North Face, I had no desire to come back to the United States and do that with the fun I was having, you know, having, you know, retail stores in Asia and having all these things. It was so much fun. So that was great. I did that for 10 years. Uh, and then one of my other goals, which uh, was from back in the 70s, is I always wanted to do a sailing trip. Uh, so uh, at, in 2005, I decided uh, we'd buy a sailboat and go sailing and so i retired early uh and the bonuses that i've been getting helped buy a sailboat and uh and then we took off and sailed for 
you know, 10 years and then we came back to Mammoth. So that's my one job. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Changed the whole scope of the industry when you think about it. Those brands, where would they be today if they weren't uh, bought by VF? If you hadn't brought them in and shepherded them? Who knows, you know? Yeah, oh, I was going to say, I don't know if VF is what it is today, right? Would they have, had they been acquiring brands up to that point? I- Only apparel brands. So okay. and they, they had looked at buying, you know, workwear brands and that's what they did. And, right. you know, and, you know, I would go to the meetings and the jeanswear guys, you know, were 90% of the profits. And, you know, what I wanted to do, they were just, you know, make fun of me, you know, because well, you're not even a real division. And now VF has spun off that whole apparel right. side. <laughs> That's yeah. not even part of it. So, well, and, uh, and uh, you know, and I've heard from people that that call, uh, you know, VF Corporation Vans Footwear Company. You know, that that yeah. was uh, that was. Uh, I mean, w- what a good decision! I know that's a very very big business for them. Is is Vans? Yeah. But um, remember, at the time when we bought Vans, because I only I was only involved in the international part of that. This is a brand that was going downhill because consumers right. didn't want it, stores were dropping it, and it was close to bankruptcy. Right. Uh, same with the North Face. It was in bankruptcy. I mean, it and the bank was taking it. We bought it actually from the bank, not even from the owners. So it's so easy to look back and say, you yeah. know, good decisions. But at the time, these were really hard decisions. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, everything in retrospect is you know much easier. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Greg, what your thoughts, your path? My journey is I stayed with Wilderness a little longer, uh, probably too long, really, for, for my liking. But the, there were some new people who came in, and then there were some people who bought up a big part of the company. And they were just financial guys. And they would say, why don't you take these products to Walmart? I hear they're going to be a really big retailer. And, and, and I was finally, at one point, I just said, you know, I'm going to go climbing. We lived in those factories our whole life. That was like our home. And everything I owned was basically hanging on the walls and photographs. um, I was really close friends with a photographer, Galen Rowell, who was one of the best outdoor photographers, really successful at the time. Kind of like the, he was called like the Ansel Adams of the outdoors, the new Ansel Adams. And he would go on expeditions, but he didn't have much extra money. And so, I would give him like 20 or 30 rolls of film and he would shoot 500, 600 photographs. And then when he came back, he would just give me the film and say, look, whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. Um, I don't have the, I don't want to pay for the development. And so I would just keep getting all these thousands and thousands of Galen Rowell original photographs, which today would be worth a lot of money. Um, And I had them all filed. And when I walked out, I, felt like they belonged to the company, so I didn't take it with me. I left a lot of stuff. And I found out later on, they just came in and threw it all out. Because who, who, why would you want to keep all that stuff? Like, why would you want to keep all of Ansel Adams' original black and white photograph? So it was a, it was a pretty good move to leave. Um, and, and, and we weren't suffering too much. So I went and kind of went climbing in Africa and different places. I did more expedition expeditions and then um, was helping some friends who had a sales agency and um, just kind of playing around with them more than anything else and out of the blue I got a phone call from Nike and uh, their their top team said would you be willing to come up and talk to us tomorrow 
And my first response is like, who is this really? Like, is this, <laughs> you know, I thought it was Jim Danini, one of our climber friends impersonating Phil Knight. You know, it's like, this is not Phil Knight calling. And so, um, and I also didn't have much respect for the big sporting goods companies like, like a Nike or an Adidas. I just thought those were sporting goods companies. It's not my world. But the, I, they flew me up the next day to uh, Beaverton, Oregon. And I got a tour of the facilities with Phil Knight and, and Mark Parker and, and Tom Clark. Um, and they were like, we want to start an outdoor business. This was in 1987. And so um, maybe end of 86. And I, I said, uh, well, the North Face is for sale. And you could buy that and have the best brand in the world. And you'd be up and running and build that to a bigger business. And um, Phil Knight, I remember, looked at me and just said, why would I want to buy a little outdoor brand when I can create my own with a much bigger brand? And what if I was to give you this $10 million budget to build a brand for me and you come on and do that at, at Nike? And by the way, how much stock do you want in Nike? And, you know, I was super stupid in those days. I was like, you know, give me uh, 10,000 shares now and 10,000 uh, stock options and, and, um, and a salary that was more than anybody made in the outdoor industry. And except for my brother, who was already up, yeah. Um, and, and so the next day, I got hired as, um, to start this new division, and we named it ACG for All Conditions Gear. And then after that got launched in one year, they came back and said, you know, we don't really like our apparel people very much. Um, would you be willing to take over apparel and be director of marketing for Nike Worldwide for the apparel division? And I said, sure, you know, that'd be interesting. And that's got me into like all the sporting good stuff and all of that. And, it, and, and it, my thought was, let's bring performance to Nike because at that time it was pretty much just screen printed blanks and t-shirts and sweatshirts and not a lot of really great, great product. And so I was able to create product for all the categories, created the Andre Agassi shorts and um, created a lot of the printed Lycra running tights uh, with a friend of mine who had a small contract place called Guy Wells. He was in San Luis Obispo. And we started creating all this new product. And, that, and then at some point, after a few years there, I was thinking, well, this is so weird working for a big company. And I'm, I'm, I'm not living at home. I have homes. I have a beautiful house in Malibu. I have a beautiful house in Orinda in Northern California, and I'm living in a condo in Portland. Why am I doing this? So um, I left to start a new company, which I called American Sports Group. And the idea was from all of the outdoor experience we had at Wilderness, I always felt product was number one. If you made great product, it would always bring people to your door. But at Nike, I realized it's not the product. If you have great marketing, you can make great product happen. And that companies that just made great product and didn't have great marketing, 
usually didn't get very far. And so I really got thrown into the whole world of marketing and on a worldwide basis. So I, I came out and said, well, what's missing in the outdoor industry is there's nobody who really understands marketing, understands design, and understands production in Asia at that time. So in 1990, I started this company and I would go to all the outdoor companies and say, you know, here's a category that you're missing. Uh, you're not making any travel luggage. I'll do the designs and I'll make all your salesman samples and supply the production for a fee plus a percentage of the production. And I was really fortunate that pretty much every single company I went to, I got hired or we got, got the business. And we, we ran that business for about 20 years. Um, even Jansport became a Jansport and North Face and Patagonia and all these companies were making products for them. And um, in 2002, um, I bought the, I bought Mountain Smith, which was a had just gone bankrupt. I bought it from the bank, and I bought another sourcing company called 105 Meridian, and a couple other smaller bike brands and some other things. And I combined them all together and built them up to a point where it was doing pretty well. And I sold all of it to an investment guy um, in 2006 with the idea that I would own, I think I ended up with 20% of the overall company, but um, um, it was enough money also again to be kind of you know, wondering why you're doing this stuff. And I remember in 2008, waking up with my wife and we looked at each other and I said, why are we doing this? And she said, I have no idea. Why don't we take our kids out of school? We've got one kid going to college, so she's gonna be out of the house. And our second daughter is going to be going into sixth grade and we could teach sixth grade. And I was like, you're right. I'm not smart enough to teach seventh, but six I could probably handle. So we sold everything we had. We gave away all our clothing. We sold our cars. We rented our house out for two years to a couple from Europe. We had a day pack and a roller bag, both from Eagle Creek each. And uh, Eagle Creek actually sponsored our trip. And we left the country for one year and just traveled around the world, living together as a little family unit uh, for two weeks per city. And we ended up going to about 27 different countries and then came back with the idea that I'm done. I mean, there's, you know, I'm getting older. I'm never going to be starting another company. It's too much work. Um, we're, we're, we're fairly successful. So, you know, I we could retire. My brother had already retired. And I was like, why am I still working? And, um, out of the blue, Adidas called and said, we want to set up an outdoor division and we're afraid of the United States. We don't know how to do it. Would you be willing to talk to us about writing the plans for doing Adidas Outdoor in the United States? And um, I was thinking, well, you know, I tried it at Nike. <laughs> well, maybe second time will be better. And this time it, we were able to put together the right team. And so I've been doing that for the, almost the past 11 years. And uh, I'm about to um, retire in December. So it <laughs> uh, turned out to work out pretty well. And we built that. We built it up, not quite to 100 million, but pretty close. Um, I, my brother's always a little bit better than me at all that stuff. But uh, uh, it was a, a lot of work and a lot of fun. So it was the first time I ever really worked in a 
corporate environment where I actually had a lot of the um, influence and the ability to, to make the decisions. And so it's, it's right. been great. I kind of wish I had done that, you know, 40 years earlier, but it stayed right. with should have stayed with uh, Nike. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't mean to excel, you know, go through that last section really quickly. I, I thought it was important to at least, you know, talk, talk through um, kind of what, what you both have been doing recently because you've done so much. Um, but maybe kind of as a, a way to wrap up the conversation, I, I know we've been going for a while uh, and this has been great. I appreciate you both being um, so willing to share your time, but um, you know, what, you know, I wilderness is, is coming back or is back in a way. Um, what, when did you both, you know, I guess what, what was kind of the history of, you know, wilderness got bought and you both left, um, you know, what was the, the decline of the, the company? And, and then when did the, the company become available again for, for you both to, to, to start back up again? What, what was kind of the story behind that? I'll do the decline part. The decline <laughs> part was it got bought by financial people. Right. And all they were interested in is how they could sell stock, buy stock, you know, do shell companies. And so they sold the company. Um, company got sold a few times. And eventually there's just no soul left. And it just kind of basically got shut down. And right. really a shame because they, but they didn't know how to, they just didn't have a feel for the business whatsoever. And the one time they did, they, they tried to move it to Dana Designs and let him run it. Well, they bought uh, Yeah, they bought Dana, but they put him in charge of Wilderness. But, you know, Dana, he wanted to do his own. He wasn't going to build a different brand. He had his own, so he didn't care. And so it kind of kept going down. Yeah. And, and then the company that owned it kept getting bought, too. So they, be, they became... I don't even know who it is anymore. So, uh, but then uh, was it four years ago? We decided we were talking, and you know, it, it was some of our friends that worked there, and we we're saying, you know, it's really a shame because you know, for a lot of us, we put in such a big part of our early lives into this business, and then it's just gone. And Greg had this very cool yard uh, in uh, Malibu that, uh, so we decided to have a party. Well, I decided that we should have a party and that Greg should sponsor it and <laughs> invite us to his house. Uh, and we had, uh, almost 60 people come to it. These were employees from the seventies. So it was really, cause a lot of these people I hadn't seen since the seventies either. So it was a really super fun party. And, and at one point we're all talking about, you know, it's such a shame it's gone. And, you know, so we're saying, you know, it'd be so cool to make, you know, well, we had the dome tent set up there, you know, the still the only true geodesic dome tent ever made uh, on the uh, on the lawn outside. And, you know, if you're cool to make that again. And so we're all, you know, talking about it. And after a few glasses of wine, it sounded like a super great idea. And then we just kind of dropped it. But then I started looking uh, looking at the uh, who owned the trademark and it had gone through. And then it was getting up to where they needed to renew it. And that was probably a year and a half ago or so, and they didn't renew it. You know, that's, I guess nobody cares. I mean, I'm, this company probably owns a billion different names and, you know, we're doing, and so I thought, well, this would be fun. So, and then Greg was up uh, visiting us one time and uh, we were sitting around and probably having a little bit of wine and I said, you know, why don't we make a the backpack, you know, the clutter sack, we sold hundreds of thousands of those and, you know, so many people loved it. Uh, and why don't we make that again? And at the time, it was kind of a dumb idea, and we just kind of ignored it. And then when the trademark hadn't been renewed, I 
went ahead and filed for it and got the trademark and then decided that we should make the clutter sack and how we would sell it would be hard and decided to do it with a Kickstarter program uh, a lot because, you know, using the Kickstarter is almost a marketing method, but it also pre-sold, even though we were going to make them anyway, whether, uh, whether they sold or not. Uh, and uh, through Greg's contacts, uh, found a really one of the top uh, pack companies that are manufacturing companies that would do a run small enough that we could do it. And we did the Kickstarter program and it succeeded and uh, raised the money and they, they, they came in and uh, shipped them out and, and we still have some, but uh, you know, it was just, it was really a fun thing to do. Uh, but, uh, but it was really fun. And then being able to have comments and we still get some, you know, these people that have been around a long time that owned them back in the seventies. It's, you know, hearing from different people. Uh, it's been really fun. Or one with a guy called the, uh, Ed Beasters, who is the first American to climb all the 8,000 meter peaks, uh, made some comment about it. I, I kind of like, you were too young. You don't remember this. You were, uh, you know, like a, in elementary school when we met. And he said, well, no, when I was in college and first, you know, started climbing, I bought one from a, uh, a Salvation Army for $2. And it was my pack. That was all I could afford. I used it for years. And lo- you know, so there was a whole lot of these people that it was kind of fun to do. Uh, so it's been a fun experience. And for me, I learned a lot because, you know, everything I've done for the last, you know, years, I had people working for me doing it. I mean, new things like, where do you get a UPC code? Who gives you that little code? Where does that come from? You know, before I had a department that did that. You know? Uh, and you know, how do you ship this out? How do you, you know, so uh, how do you import stuff anymore? I, we always had, you know, traffic departments that arranged shipping and all that. So it was sort of fun to do a really small scale thing. And, uh, right. I, I think that, you know, from this conversation, it, it seems clear that um, neither of you can sit still for too long. You, you, yeah. you like to work, right? You, or, or at least work on stuff worth working on. Um, you know, if it's if it's worth it. Um, you know, it seems like you both jump in um, head for head first, and and I imagine seeing that trademark come up. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know. It probably felt like, oh, I have to do this, right? Yeah, I, right. Yeah, I need to get this back, and um, you know, kind of close the loop on that a little bit. Um, you know, it's it's too bad that there's the decline, but to be able to have that back in your hands, it's got to be an interesting interesting feeling to to see it come back full circle. Um, you know, what what does the future of that look like? I I can't imagine you're looking to you know grow some massive company again because that would tie you down. You you well, enjoy I, playing too much, right? But, I think Greg, when Greg retires from Adidas the end of this year, he should take it over and start right. making stuff again. Yeah. Jim runs the whole thing, and I'm just a helper who gives advice. But I'm thinking when I retire, I'm going to set up a guide service and start <laughs> taking underprivileged kids climbing. That would really be full circle, right. wouldn't it? Move it right back to the start. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, I, I, I would love to just keep talking, but I'm going to, you know, for your sakes, let you get back to, to what you've been doing. And, um, but this has been really Which fun. For me is nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's, that's great though. I'll let you get back to that. Um, but I, I appreciate you both taking the time to, to walk through this history and, and, and your stories. You've both done so much, um, for this industry in this industry. Um, you know, and I, I, I want to bring it back to the, the conversation at the beginning and, uh, Greg, you kind of did that. I, you know, I, I think, you know, what you guys were, were pioneering in the beginning still applies today. And, and, um, 
you know, in regards to, to just getting people outside and finding ways to help people do that. Um, so I, I, again, I appreciate you taking time to, to share the story and um, hopefully we can do what we can to help, help, uh, you know, educate and, and help people understand, um, you know, the impact that, that you've had in so many different ways. Um, and hopefully, you know, if you've got some, still got some wilderness experience packs, we'll, you know, hopefully a few people, you know, picks, pick some of those up or keep an eye out for them, you know, floating around online. So. Well, I, I would say the one thing that I see now being getting old <laughs> and uh, looking back is that both Jim and I, in a lot of ways, only did stuff that was really fun for ourselves. And we would put up with it not being fun for a while, but we both realized that you can't put up with not having fun for too long because the time goes by too fast. And the next thing you know, you've lost, you've wasted 10 years doing something you wish you hadn't spent 10 years doing. And so we've been pretty good at um, kind of just going along and if it feels right, do it. And if it doesn't feel right, change directions. I think that's great. That's, that, that's a great life lesson. Wow. Well, you know, we'll, we'll leave it there. If we, if we ever want to do a, a part two, you know, I think there's, there's so much more to talk about, um, but, but this has already been a long one, uh, but, but it's so good at the same time. So we'll leave it there. If people want to stay in touch um, or at least keep up with the, the new wilderness experience, um, how would they do that? Uh, we have both a, a Facebook page and a website. Uh, okay. The web, website is wildernessexperience.net because .com is is a religious group that doesn't want to sell the name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know the the Facebook one when people a lot of people will post pictures of their packs and things on that. Uh, but that's that's the way right now. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's great. Well. Craig, Jim, thanks for taking the time. It was great to talk to you. I, I, again, you've both been so generous to, to talk this long with me. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.